is making up. Call this toll-free number now to see how to get this free information. The information includes a form for confidentiality and to record and take your idea. Plus, I went out walking through streets paved with gold. Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch the show on television, they can go to hotm.tv on the internet and watch streaming video from anywhere in the world. They can also watch our archive shows from that website. Spent a wonderful evening last night in Orem with uh, some people from Christ Evangelical Church with Pastor Scott McKinney. We have long supported Christ Evangelical and Orem as the go-to church in that area. And let me give you the reason why. Um, when you talk, uh, when you walk into Christ Evangelical Church on a Sunday, you do not hear Mormonism discussed. What you hear and what you uh, experience is worshiping God and learning about the Bible. Why is this important? Ministries like Utah Lighthouse Ministry and and our ministry and others, we're here to do the dirty work and, and get into the quasi-apologetic side of talking about Mormonism and getting into all that, and, and we kind of do that. And the churches, their job is to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bring people who have left Mormonism and teach them about the Bible and help them understand who Jesus is. And we've known that about Christ Evangelical, and so we have long supported them uh, and how they approach that. In addition to Christ Evangelical, we actually stand behind any church in Utah, which is uh, transitional friendly, we'll say. That a Latter-day Saint can walk in and just uh, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. Uh, over a year ago, we began challenging people to send in letters to have their names removed from the LDS church. We called the project Abandon Ship. The response has been interesting to say the least. First, we have seen a number, I mean a lot actually, of people take action and we've watched how taking that action has helped them and has not hurt them. We've also heard from a number of LDS people who have actually thanked us for uh, performing this service for the church. And what they mean by this is, in their opinion, those people who would abandon ship are dead weight to the true church of Jesus Christ and so it helps God's true church to function more efficiently by having them leave. Uh, aren't you glad Jesus didn't have that attitude when he came to earth? He never would have gone to the cross, you know. Uh, but we also receive an occasional email from somebody who is an inactive Latter-day Saint and they usually will say something like, um, why would I even care about leaving that church? They have no power or authority over me. What's the purpose in abandoning ship? Well, let me share a few thoughts on this for whatever they're worth. First and foremost, taking your name off the records of the church is a personal decision between you and God. I would never say uh, you must do it. I would never say you must not do it. It's, it's up to you. This being said, I am personally all about people taking their names off the, elder, uh, the LDS membership rolls for a few reasons. First, it sends a message loud and clear to the hierarchy. It allows you to state in no uncertain terms why you're doing it. And uh, this act in and of itself may cause down the road some changes to occur for people who remain inside. Secondly, 
It is an act, or it can be an act, of great liberation. For many people, it's almost a, a, a symbolic gesture that says, I am removing all things Mormon from my life. This seems to be the greatest benefit people derive from abandoning ship from the emails that we receive. Third, it makes an important statement to your family on a number of grounds. Um, maybe it will be your parents or a sibling or a niece or a nephew or somebody who will someday too wonder what to do and they'll look at your example and this stuff happens uh, generationally and in families and everything happens within the family group and so you might be setting a precedent for them to choose freedom. Fourth, it creates work for people in the LDS church. And they have to go through and they got to do all their bureaucratic stuff of signing these letters and sending this and doing that. And in the meantime, they may invite you to have an interview. And if they do, it allows you to voice your opinions to them. And you may be planting seeds in some of those people, you know, as they sit there and hear why you are leaving what they believe is the only true church on the face of the earth. And finally, I think when we step forward and act in faith like that, even in some things that may appear insignificant, it can open us up to vistas that we had never before experienced. Give it some thought. If you're so inclined by God, abandon ship. Go to www.utlm.org for more information about how to do it. I'm of the opinion that there are a number of strategies and tactics the LDS general leadership takes in order to appear more Christian in our present day. But what I am about to quote from in the Salt Lake Tribune, I believe is an awesome step in the right direction uh, if it bears fruit. One of the reasons I'm supportive of this is because this drive is coming from a single Mormon scholar whose mind I respect from other writings that I have observed from him in the past. His name is Robert Reese. It seems that a California State Sacramento historian uh, just finished his master's thesis on the use of the cross in early Mormon history and shows how it was used sparsely by members of the church back then. Around the turn of the 20th century, all that changed when the cross became a symbol of anti-Catholicism sentiments within uh, Mormon general authorities primarily. Uh, the article says that this negative opinion of the cross was institutionalized in the 1950s by LDS President David O. McKay. Later on, LDS President Joseph Fielding Smith compared the cross to a guillotine and called it, quote, a tool of execution, which it was. Uh, and the spiritually twisted LDS apostle Bruce R. McConkie equated the cross, says the article, with the Bible's satanic mark of the beast. Uh, see what happens when you trust the opinions of men as receiving modern-day revelation? You get guys like McConkie telling people that the cross is a satanic symbol of the mark of the beast. Uh, enter Robert Reese. He is uh, kind of a one-man campaign to get the LDS to embrace the cross. Now, Reese points out in his research that the strongest opposition to the cross within Mormonism was formalized, as I said, in the 1950s by the prophet David O. McKay, who was concerned with the Catholic influence that was coming about in Utah at the time. In 1957, McKay made a statement as a prophet that it was not proper for LDS girls to wear the cross on their jewelry, stating that it was, quote, purely Catholic. This opposition to the cross became church policy at that time. From what I've read, it appears that Brother Reese wants to see LDS people wear the cross because of his love and respect for what it represents. I support these efforts wholeheartedly. I, while a lot of changes, a lot of changes, need to be made in the meanwhile relative to doctrine, I can't help believe that a grassroots campaign uh, to, for people in the LDS church to begin wearing crosses or at least showing the cross more in their chapels, maybe putting it outside. Yes, it's going to blur the waters, but it would help facilitate a change of heart within the individual Latter-day Saints. Why? Well, how does the Bible view the cross? And let me give you a few scriptures before we move on. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul writes, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ 
should be made of none effect. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us we are saved, which are saved, it is the power of God. That's what the Bible says about the cross. Galatians 5.11 speaks of the offense of the cross. Galatians 6.12 speaks of the suffering of people suffering persecution for the cross of Christ. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.16 speaks of us reconciling ourselves in one body by the cross. Philippians 3.18 finally says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Don't continue to be one of those who walk, but are enemies of the cross. It's a glorious symbol of his love and the unbelievable gift he has freely offered to us for eternal life. With that, let's have a prayer. Lord, we uh, pray that you will be with all of us tonight, our studio audience, our listening, viewing audience, uh, our technicians, people who are struggling with their faith. Uh, give me the words you want me to say and uh, just help us to be able to communicate in ways you want, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we begin our examination of the Mormon Mountain Meadows Massacre. I think it's important to add yet another M word to this alliteration to make it very clear who was in charge of that massacre. Mormons. A lot has been said and done in the ugly wake of this horrific event, so much so that you may even wonder, why are you even covering it? We've seen so much about it. Several wonderfully researched books have been written on the subject. Two that I'm going to use throughout these next few programs are from the hands of LDS authors Juanita Brooks and Will Bagley. There have been motion pictures made about it, TV news coverage about it, and a plethora of magazine and newspaper articles composed over the years. What can we add to the examination of the event that has not already been revealed? First, we will consistently suggest that the Mormon Mountain Meadows Massacre was the direct result of Mormon doctrine. Doctrine that has not changed even to this day. Now we're going to bring up a, 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 a graphic here that talks about how, how doctrine affects people. Let's bring that up. It says, doctrine creates values. Values form the heart. The heart produces words. Words drive actions. You can see that doctrine or in actions, it begins with doctrine, that little stanza ends with uh, actions. And we're going to see that it's doctrine that pushed this massacre to occur. A good friend of mine says, we act out of what we believe, not what we know. Secondly, we will consistently suggest that what happened at Mormon Mountain Meadows Massacre was the result of a series of situations, events, and teachings which came solely from the culture of Mormonism. We will remind the audience that those who constructed the plan to the massacre, initiated the actions, and ultimately finished the job of killing over 120 innocent men, women, and children were faithful Latter-day Saints. They were not aberrant offshoot sect members of the LDS Church. They weren't outskirt people. They were bishops. There was a stake president who led the way. They were local abiding temple endowed members of the LDS faith. This cannot be forgotten. We will never ever prove whether Brigham Young authorized the killings or not with the data we have at hand. We will suggest, however, that he was, as Juanita Brooks put it, an accessory to the crime. We will also place the decision making for the massacre itself within a documented historical context of Mormonism, meaning 
that often prior to making any serious decision about going in and taking the innocent life of these people, the LDS men would gather together and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to ratify their actions. Finally, we hope to show and warn that if LDS doctrine has not changed, even to this day, then neither has the true Mormon heart. And we suggest that history tends to repeat itself and another Mormon Mountain Meadows massacre of sorts is waiting in the wings of the future on a potentially much larger scale. We'll talk more about that in the last program. So let's review the Mormon Mountain Meadows Massacre, what contributed to it, who was involved in it, what occurred, and what the response to it has been over the last 152 years. As we go through this, I think it's really important for you to remember that the Mormon Mountain Meadows Massacre, which occurred on 9-11 of 1857, would not have occurred had Joseph Smith not claimed to have received revelations from God in the same way that the World Trade Centers would not have fallen on 9-11-2001 had other men not claimed to represent God when they didn't. When men step in where God has not, the result is always the death of innocence and the death of the innocent. Okay, so on the first day of spring in 1857, Hundreds of men, women, and children gathered at Beller's Stand in Carroll County, Arkansas, in anticipation to make the long trek west to California. Hustling and bustling among the travelers was a well-to-do, by the standards of the day, team, which we are going to call the Francher Party, named after one of the leaders of the train and his family. Myth and rumor have attempted to paint the Francher Party as a bunch of wild ruffians, but there are a number of reasons to believe this is purely rumor, a sheer fabrication to protect the guilty. First of all, traveling over the continent in those days was a very expensive proposition, costing every single family somewhere between forty dollars and $50,000 in our day's currency. Uh, this would remove the ruffian element. Now, there were single cowboys who were going along too, and they could have been more of the ruffian type. But the families that made up the Francher party were not of that. Additionally, LDS historian Will Bagley states that while most gold rush teams were composed primarily of men, of the Francher train, which had about 140 people, they think, 50 of them were children under 16 years of age, and there were also a great number of women. Finally, and possibly most importantly, as to the character and makeup of the Francher party, um, especially within the family units, they were in all probability practicing, believing Christians. Says Bagley, quote, many witnesses commented on the piety of the immigrants. In addition to travel costs, most every family brought with them an abundance of personal treasure they intended to trade and use once they arrived in California. One of these families in the Francher party, for example, the Mitchells, are said to have carried at least $50,000 worth of goods as barter. To top it all off, the Francher train also drove an enormous group of fine cattle out west with them, most likely over 600 head. So in short, the Francher party was a traveling, enviable group moving through Utah. Now around the same time that the Arkansas group began stirring up dust on their drive to the west, two major contributors were being, uh, to their being massacred were taking place. The first was the murder of Apostle Parley P. Pratt in the state of Arkansas where the Francher party originated. Pratt was in San Francisco when he met a woman named Eleanor McLean. He was an original apostle in the church and a husband of 11 wives at the time. When he met Eleanor, she was married to an abusive man whose name was Hector McLean. As a younger person, Eleanor had been intrigued with Mormonism and was introduced to it when she was a child in Louisiana. In San Francisco, she had met some Mormons, and her interest in Mormonism returned, but Eleanor's husband, Hector, refused to allow her to be baptized as a member. She later rebelled and submitted to the ordinance without his permission. 
Shortly after being baptized, Eleanor met church apostle Parley P. Pratt. Now it seems from the record that Pratt tried to bring reconciliation between Hector and Eleanor's marriage, but he only inflamed the tension uh, within the couple's marriage because he secretly baptized two of their children without Hector's permission. This action infuriated Hector. Fearful that Eleanor would run off to Utah with his children, Hector secretly smuggled out all the McLean children by boat, a steamboat, back to their grandparents who were in Louisiana. He told Eleanor he had sent them, quote, where she and the cursed Mormons can never see them again. A month later, Hector softened toward the action he took against his wife and paid for Eleanor to go to Louisiana to see their children where they were closely guarded at all times lest she tried to take the children to Utah. Well, she made a break to escape with them and was caught before she could get out of the city. It was then that her parents told her they would finance her trip to Utah if she would promise to leave the children in Louisiana with them. She took the money and ran to the territory called Deseret. She arrived on September 11th, 1855, and found work at none other than Apostle Parley P. Pratt's home as a school teacher. Listen, LDS author Bagley reports, quote, Without the benefits of a divorce, Brigham Young sealed Eleanor McLean to Pratt for time and all eternity, November 14, 1855, in the Salt Lake City Endowment House as the Apostle's 12th wife, end quote. Now jump ahead a year later to 1856, when Pratt and his new bride Eleanor were called to a mission in the eastern states. On the journey, Eleanor split off from Pratt so she could go and collect her children in Louisiana, which she did, and take them to Texas, hoping to rendezvous with Pratt on his way back. But hell hath no fury like a man scorned. Hector, Eleanor's lawful husband, was hell-bent on getting revenge. He tracked and trailed Parley P. Pratt across the, the, the nation, as far as I'm concerned, and long story short, he found the apostle who had taken his wife at the border of Arkansas, and he shot and stabbed him to death while he was on horseback, leaving him for dead. Uh, this was in the spring of 1857, the very same spring the Francher party was traveling west from Arkansas, the state where Pratt was killed. They didn't know or have anything to do with Parley P. Pratt's death. So news that the Apostle Pratt was martyred, as how they put it, quickly reached Utah. An LDS newspaper in California mourned Pratt as a true martyr and warned that God would show up at some point for revenge. The paper waxed on like the voice from God, saying, quote, Upon this generation shall come all the righteous blood which has been shed from the time of Jesus to the present, end quote. Unfortunately, Hector, who was not a man who could control himself, the killer of Pratt, openly boasted that killing him was the best act of his life, quote, and added in a horribly exaggerated generalization, which said that the people of western Arkansas agree with me. Well, this statement would not do very much good for the Francher party when they entered Utah, Parley P. Pratt's home state, and to cross it into California. Interestingly enough, a secular newspaper in California speculated with great accuracy when it wondered in print if there would be any repercussions from Brigham Young for Apostle Pratt's murder. It asked whether the hot blood which now be seething and boiling in the veins of Brigham Young and his satellites at Salt Lake would be cooled by the murder of Gentiles who passed through their territory. In light of everything I've read, I would say the hot blood of Brigham Young was cooled by the murder of Gentiles. The second event that would contribute to the Francher party being butchered was the fact that the United States government was on its way to invade Brigham Young's territory and restore what they felt was a people and a leader who had become a law unto themselves. According to Bagley, after hearing a speech on Pioneer Day in 1850, an immigrant reported that Mormon leaders, quote, prophesied that the total overthrow of the United States government was at hand and that the whole nation would soon be at the feet of the Mormons, suing for mercy and protection. 
Such talk was and still is terrifying to people of this country who want to live free of despots and tyranny of any kind. A Presbyterian minister who happened to spend the winter of 1850 in the Utah Territory said, quote, that on the face of the earth there is not a people found so completely under the control of one man, soul, body, and property as are the Mormons to Brigham Young, end quote. Bagley adds that, quote, sojourners who witnessed the LDS's fierce devotion left Utah convinced the saints would do anything their leaders ordered, end quote. We will soon see that their opinion of Brigham Young and the Saints was true, even to the point of killing little children who begged for their life. Sean, it's not Francher, it's Fancher. Sorry, Fancher. I'm sorry about that. Okay. Uh, as a result of reports and opinions like these and the additional charges that the Mormons were then getting all the Indians to side with them in the war against the invasion of the United States and getting the Indians to, quote, uh, to stimulate them into acts of hostility, President Buchanan came to the conclusion that in order to protect the Union from the Mormons and even to save Mormons from Young's tyranny and his band of outlaw destroying angels, they would send in 2,500 U.S. troops. On May 20th of 1857, the same spring the Francher party headed west, U.S. President Buchanan sent troops toward Utah along with a replacement for Young as governor. Their orders, quote, to ensure the establishment and maintenance of law and order. Now, would a truly Christian community based on the love of Jesus and a belief in the Bible and worshiping God in peace ever need such intervention as this? In July of 1857, Pioneer Day to be exact, a special meeting was called by Young when he heard that the U.S. Army was coming. There, 2,500 of the most faithful and committed Latter-day Saints gathered in Big Cottonwood Canyon just outside the Salt Lake City Basin. A bugle called the people together at sunset. And, through, uh, and though their exact remarks are, did not survive, the Deseret News reported that when it was announced that the U.S. government had called their uh, contract to deliver mail and canceled it and that 2,500 soldiers were on their way bringing them a new governor and a set of new judges, a scene, quote, of madness and confusion followed. I would imagine in some respects it would have been similar to the response found at Waco and Guyana and Jonestown when news of infiltration was announced. Brigham Young announced that the people constituted a free and independent state to be known no longer as Utah, but by their own Mormon name, Deseret. Heber Kimball called on the people to, quote, adhere to Brigham Young as their prophet, seer, revelator, priest, governor, and king, end quote. And they did. Within two months, the Francher, the Fancher party would experience firsthand what kind of kingdom this king had established. Let's open up the phone lines and get the operators going. 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Before taking your calls, we're gonna pause for an important message that we'll be running for the next six weeks. Thanks for watching. Hi, my name's Sean McCraney. I'm the host of Heart of the Matter and the founder of Aletheia Ministries. Uh, when my wife and I started Aletheia Ministries about six years ago, we underwrote all the expenses ourselves. Over the course of time, many of you have unsolicited uh, come alongside of us and supported us, and we thank you so much uh, for doing that. Uh, however, we've reached a point in the ministry where actually by the end of June of this year, uh, Aletheia Ministries, uh, heart of the matter, will cease to exist because of our financial situation. We can no longer subsidize the expenses ourselves. So uh, I really hate doing this. If you've watched the show, you know we are not about uh, money and finances. We've been on three years and we've never ever uh, done that and tried to solicit you to your funds. But what we would like you to uh, at least consider is to partner up with us, become a heart of the matter partner, H-O-T-M partner. And um, our board of directors have come up with this plan, so to speak, to come alongside God in this ministry and, um, and help us bring more people to the, a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our ministry has seen an abundance of fruit and we've seen many people come 
uh, to the Lord as a result of God's ministry here uh, in Utah. And so we just want to introduce to you the HOT and Partners concept. Uh, you can go call 888-868-HOTM. That's 888-868-4686. It's a toll-free number. And you can get uh, ask, leave a message, or speak to an operator and get a brochure on how to become a partner. Or you can go online, www.hotm.tv, and become a partner right there online. So we need you now. It's urgent. And I know all television ministries say that, but it is. And we place this in God's hands and yours. God bless you. Hey, listen, we've been running that spot. This is the third time, and uh, the response uh, has been building. We want to thank each and every one of you who have, uh, by the volition of the Lord and by through your prayers, have decided to come alongside with your support. You know who you are, and we are so grateful for whatever whatever you uh, choose to do. We, uh, we've got a ways to go to establish uh, long-term sustainability but we think the way it's going, it's going to work, and uh, that's our only hope. So because of your actions, we can see a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a freight train. So uh, on we go. Well, the operators continue to go. We'll get to Connie in a minute from Sandy. Continue to call in 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. If you get a message or a busy signal, just keep trying back. Operators will clear your calls. I got to... Uh, an email, and I want to read this to you partially just because he brings something up that I think is important. This man says, Mike, for 35 years I was deceived by the LDS Church, uh, and I'm angry at the church for all the lies and brainwashing they told me. Uh, this is the interesting part. He wrote, I finally had my first beer on my birthday at my friend's, and then I had tea and coffee finally too. All, and then he goes on, keep up the good work. We know you're doing the right thing. Why, what do you think it is that would make somebody uh, who has been raised to not do these things to when they decide, when they see the deception, to actually go and fall apart? Well, this is part of the sinister nature of buying into a religion that gives you uh, definite ways that you have to do everything. Because when you find out that those ways are not sent to you by someone who's been telling you the truth, you don't care anymore. You, I mean, this is a 35-year-old man, he says, and he's out having his first beer and drinking coffee. Like He's probably up all night and drunk at the same time because he doesn't even know how to handle these substances. He's never had it in his life. You know, and it's such a shame that when you bring somebody under, it's just like a child, a teenager. If they have parents who are so dogmatic, so overbearing, so rule bound, when that child is able to break free and they go to college, it's just fly it all, just do whatever you want craziness. What a shame that the result of discovering what Mormonism has been teaching you is sin, you know? And often it goes that way. We get those emails and it's so destructive. Another element, another part of the fruit of what this religion, man-made religion, does. Okay, we're going to Sandy. I said we go to her first. First-time caller. Uh, actually, it's Connie from Sandy. First-time caller. Connie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. You know, I'm actually not a first-time caller. This is about the third time I've called. I love your program, and I have read your book. So oh, thanks. shout out for you on the book. Anyways, I do have one question for you. I tuned in just a couple minutes late today, and maybe you already answered this question, but here goes. My question for you is, why is it that the LDS Church does not want you to wear a cross? Well, it, yeah, we did talk about that, and according to the article in the Salt Lake Trib and Robert Reese and this guy who did his master's thesis, it started off in the early uh, 20th century, 1900s, when there started to be a distancing between the Mormon church and Catholics. And it kind of came to a head in 1957 when David O. McKay, the prophet, said, look, uh, I, don't like, I don't like us even resembling that. The Catholics are starting to have influence. And so he made a statement that girls should not wear crosses as jewelry. And if from that, it became church policy to not have crosses. Now, some of their old buildings, I believe, like back in Kirtland and things, did have crosses. And Robert Reese and these other guys are trying to say, let's get back to that time when we had them. And so, but why the LDS don't is it was policy, first and foremost. Their reason and justification for it being policy, if you talk to the missionaries, was that it was 
an instrument of death. And the reasoning they'll use is, if a man stabbed your mother with a butcher knife, would you want a butcher knife hanging around your neck? And that's wow. the logic that they use for not wearing the cross. I see. Well, I am actually LDS. I've been on active for a long time, but I've always wanted to wear a cross. And my daughter, who is still active in the church, me and her have had many discussions about it. And she's just like, Mom, you can't do that. That's against the Mormon religion. And so I just kind of, you know... It's really not, know. you know, it, do, doctrinally, Connie, it's not against the LDS. There's no doctrine that says you can't. So you can. What you're just going to face are the sneers and looks from the other members. Well, I just want you to know that, like I said before, I love your program. I have a lot of respect for what you do. And I really hope that you can get some calls on your donations because I think that it's a worthy cause. Thanks, Connie, so much. So, seriously, thanks for putting your program on. And I try to catch it every week. I love it. Oh, God bless you. Take care. Thank you. Okay, bye. bye, -bye. We're going to Robert in Colorado City, Arizona. First time caller. Robert, Colorado City, what goes on out there? Hey, I was just wondering if you were aware that in 1930, the church removed Section 132 from the Doctrine and Covenants, among other changes, and called it Latter-day Revelations. And then, apparently, if you blinked and missed it, they put the regular Doctrine and Covenants back on the bookshelves, and I don't know the reason. I'm wondering if it had to do with fundamentalism or something, but at the same time, this book, Latter-day Revelations, missing 132, was translated into Spanish, and so when they recalled this Latter-day Revelation and put back the regular Doctrine and Covenants, then you had Spanish converts to the Mormon Church that didn't get to see 132, but English people still had their regular Doctrine and Covenants. I was wondering if you were aware of that little I'm not. switch in 1930. I'm not aware of it. I didn't know 132 was taken out. It, uh, I mean, I still know 132 is there. Was it, was it called a different section? No. Um, when they took it out, they overhauled the Doctrine and Covenants and called it Latter-day Revelations, but I don't know the history behind why they rejected what they called Latter-day Revelations and went back to the Doctrine and Covenants, but I have my suspicions it was probably because of Joseph Musser and the Woolies fundamentalism in Salt Lake huh. City. I just don't know that. But I'd have to research I, that, Robert. If you've stumped me on that one, I don't know, but I'll uh, make a call uh, or send an email to Sandra Tanner, and she will, the walking encyclopedia, have an answer readily. Yeah, you might want to check with a fundamentalist named Ivan Nielsen, who knows a lot of history of the movement in the 1930s. Have you ever heard of that name? Nielsen? Yeah, Ivan Nielsen. Have you ever heard of him? No, I haven't. Yeah, he's, of course, you'll get a view from the fundamentalist point of view, but he knows a lot of what happened in the 30s and 40s and has a huge archive that I think you might be interested in. Okay, Rob. Hey, thanks. For, hey, do you receive the show? Is it streaming or are you watching it on TV down there? I can't watch it streaming. I'm not, I've been trying to figure it out with my network provider, so I have no idea what... Well, the operator told me you're talking about Mountain Metal, so I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, I see. Well, God bless you, my friend. Keep uh, tuning in. Okay. I'll try to get an answer to those questions. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. I certainly, someone say a prayer that this speaker, I can barely hear people uh, behind us. It has totally, it's total static. Let's go to uh, Steve in Salt Lake City, first time caller. Steve, you're on Heart of the Matter. Steve? Hey, will you go look at the backyard? It goes way back there if you want. Steve? Yes. You're on the air, man. Okay, Sean. Sorry, I had the company. Uh, I just wanted to make a point going back to those times that, uh, the Meadow, Meadow, Meadow Massacre, that the Mormons were colonizers. Uh -huh. And the, the lands belonged to Mexico. Uh -huh. And, uh, but it's, but uh, Mormons like to state that they follow the laws of the land. Yeah. But back then they didn't. And I just wanted to get your opinion on that, and I'd take your answer off the air. Okay, my friend. Thanks Thank so you. much for the question. Uh, the LDS claim, in fact, it's one of their articles of faith that they obey the laws of the land. They are subject to kings, rulers, magistrates, etc., etc. 
But uh, when Brigham Young settled uh, Salt Lake Valley, uh, and in fact, Joseph Smith, the law of God always took precedence over the laws of men. That's why Brigham Young was able to take um, Hector's wife and, and marry her to Parley P. Pratt, even though she was already legally married to a man in San Francisco. He didn't, Brigham didn't care about the law of the land in San Francisco. He cared about the law of God, which was to seal another woman to Parley Pratt. And it, is, it was always that way. The Latter-day Saints have always, up until a certain point in time, were very radical and mavericky in the way they approached it. They didn't obey their uh, article of faith that says we believe in being subject. They couldn't stand the United States. They wanted, as those quotes that we read earlier stated, so they were a law unto themselves. And that's why uh, Buchanan sent troops in to stop the lawlessness and take control. Every single autocratic um, charismatic religious leader become a law unto themselves. They rewrite the Bible, they give new rules, their vision is superlative to what the land has established, and they get the people to start doing things that are contrary to conscience, the Bible, and what the laws of the land say. And this was no different. Now, Mormonism somehow, among all the other groups like that, was able to survive and become corporate. And with power and money, they become corporate and they do things by the book, apparently. But they're still, I still sense, my opinion, nothing to do with research or anything, but just my opinion, I still sense that there is a lot of this law unto yourself. If the Spirit told me, it's okay. That is one reason why Utah is the, the, one of the uh, largest scam capitals in the United States. It's because people believe that they can lie for the Lord if it's going to benefit their family. They justify all this stuff in that context. Just my opinion on that. So I hope that helped out. We're going to Cameron in Salt Lake City online too. Cameron, you're on Heart of the Matter. You're a first-time caller, Hi. and I, I want to preface this by saying I have absolute respect for what you guys do. Okay. I'm LDS, I'm very active, uh -huh. um, and I, I do believe that line in our uh, uh, article of faith about letting men worship how, when, and what they may. Uh -huh. um, I did want to ask a question, just food for thought for you. Yeah. When you mentioned that chaos ensued when they found out that President Buchanan was sending the troops, uh -huh. I thought maybe... What if it's because that in Nauvoo or Hans Mill or uh, Kirtland that Mormons were killed without regards to the law, but maybe and they feared maybe the same thing was going to happen Absolutely. from a government that, that they thought was supposed to protect them. Absolutely. You're right. Now, yeah. And, now and, I, I, I yeah. don't want to excuse anything of the black things that happened in our church's history. Mount Meadows Massacre was a horrible thing to happen. Right. Um, and also, just on your other caller's uh, question about the cross, I personally don't wear one. I like to fo fo focus on, on the, the resurrection Christ. of Christ, right. not just the death. What about the uh, biblical uh, teachings about the cross, those references that are all through it, even in the Old Testament? No, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with them, uh -huh. and I don't think that's wrong in any way. Uh -huh. Just for me personally, uh -huh. I like to focus on uh, the, the resurrection and not the death. Now, um... Uh, you're, when you say death, what that uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand you, Cameron. Uh -huh. When you say death, you mean the physical death, because or do or do you believe the atonement occurred on the cross as well? Yes, absolutely. So then, I mean, when he when he said, "Forgive them, for they know not what they do." Yeah. I mean, that t just shows that it was truly Christ, and you know, okay. amazing thing that he did. Yeah. Even while he was dying physically. Okay. So, but do, do, was the atonement taking place on the cross? I believe the whole week, you know, from the time from the Garden of Gethsemane until the time that he gave up the ghost, that was all part of the atonement. Part of the atonement, okay. So if, and the, was the cross the culmination of the atonement then? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know what to believe in that. I just know that for me personally, I have a real tough time with death. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, I just have a tough time dealing with the physical issues of it. Yeah. And so I like to focus just on him coming back and being resurrected well, three days later. Do you understand why Christians hold the cross in such uh, esteem? Absolutely. And I think it's a fabulous belief. Uh, will, I, you, will, you tell, will you explain to me as a Latter-day Saint what the Christians believe relative to the cross and why it's so important to them? 
you know, I, I don't understand it completely because I've not been exposed to a lot of other religions, yeah. which is why I tend to keep an open mind. I, I think there's other people, like a certain senator in the state senate, that should just keep their mouth quiet because they really give members of our church a bad name. Right. Um, but well, with, let, let me share with you just really quick. It'll take uh -huh. me 30 seconds. Sure. Uh, the reason Christians hold that cross that way is because they believe that what he did there allows them to live again, allows okay. them to live eternally with God. It is what, and so they rejoice. It's not the death that they're looking at. They right. rejoice at what he did there so for that's them. So the apex. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's great. That's, I, that's a wonderful belief. All right, man. Hey, thanks so much, Cameron. Hey, I definitely appreciate what you do. Okay, God you know, bless you. people talking, and you have a wonderful day, okay? You too. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We might see Cameron around in the next year or so. Uh, let's go to David and Orem. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. How are you doing, Sean? Doing well, David. How are you? you got to turn your TV down. I'm not too bad. Not too bad at all. Um, I was calling for two reasons. Yes. Um, first, at the beginning of the show, you said how you get a lot of letters from people who have left the church, and a lot of people are thinking, um, should I, why should I do it if I don't believe in it? Yeah. And I was one of those types of people for probably 19 years. Huh. Never went to church, didn't care for it, but I just didn't see the whole point of having my name removed. And so finally I had my name removed last year, and it was like this huge weight was just lifted from my shoulders that I no longer had to live like a lie or be associated or be part of something that I didn't believe in. Huh. And if I could, in one day I went from being a bad Mormon to a good Christian. Wow. It was, it was phenomenal. It was one of the best things that uh, ever happened to me, and I'm really glad I did it. And the second reason I was calling was you said that um, a lot of missionaries will say, well, if somebody stabbed your mother, would you want to hold that knife around as a reminder. Right. But it's, to me, it's not that simple. Right. It's like, if, if I was caught stealing as a small child, and they were going to cut off my hand as my punishment, and my mother says, I'll take my hand instead, yes, I would hold on to that knife forever. Yeah. I, would, I, would, I would cherish that knife, because right. it's, it's not that the Romans just ganged up on Jesus and tied him down, and the Jews helped him, and they, they crucified Jesus. Jesus allowed them to do that. Right. And by allowing him to do that, it wasn't a bad thing that they forced themselves on it. Right. It was, you know, the most beautiful thing because he allowed them to do something. So, David, hey. your explanation is really helpful because what it allows us to do is show that the missionary's example is really a bad one. And because that's not how we see the, the crucifixion at all. Well, it's not. And to me, the resurrection is the easy part. Coming, being raised from the dead and being alive, that's the easy part. Anybody here would say, hey, raise me from the dead. But right. how many people would willingly say, drive stakes through my hands, drive right. stakes through my legs, torture right. me, kill me? Nobody would do that. Right. And the fact that he did it, he had enough power, he could have eliminated the Roman and the Jewish empires. Right. But instead he said, take me. Right. For us. Praise God, David. Great call. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to borrow your statement. I went from being a bad Mormon to a good Christian in the future. All right. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Applause. We're getting applause. A very lively studio audience. Uh, we're going to Jason and Magna, first-time caller. Jason, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing? Hey, well, Jason, how are you? Oh, not too bad. We, uh, me and my family, we just moved out here from, uh, from Colorado, and, uh, I was flipping channels one night, and I came across you, and I thought it pretty interesting to, to come across a, an anti-Mormon TV station in Utah. Um, Anti-Mormonism, not Mormon. <laughs> yeah. I guess my question for you, now you've been, or you were LDS at, at one point in time. Yeah. Um, yes. uh, how long were you LDS? 40 years. 40 years, so yeah. most of your life. I'm guessing you don't look that old. Yeah, 40 years. Um, I'm really 71. <laughs> now, I guess at what point in time did you realize that you know, Mormonism wasn't for you? Uh, it occurred over a, a, a series of uh, stages, a lot of investigation, a lot of searching. But bottom line, I realized the only time I realized it was not for me was when my eyes were opened by God to who I was. I saw God for who he was. I was broken. 
I was humbled and I realized that the person, the Mormon person I was, was a lie. It was not real in the sense of who I was internally relative to who God was externally, internally in every way. And what that does is when I came to see God as the real way, I just, I, I said, save me. And he did. And when he did, he opened my eyes to see what Mormonism was about. And it was only then that I was able to clear through the fog and all the stuff that had been in my mind for so long and see exactly what the differences were. And that's when it cleared up for me. Okay. Um, so being a member 40 years, did you ever serve a mission at all? Yeah, I served the mission. I uh, married in the temple. I was a high priest. I was in a bishopric, elders quorum, seminary teacher, stake high council. Uh, the whole gamut, uh, Jason. So I, I understood it fairly well from the local level. Yeah, that's. Uh, I guess that's a pretty long list of uh, of callings in the church. Yeah. Um, How about you? I am LDS. Yeah, I served a mission. Um, I served in Michigan. Uh -huh. We got hit. You know, I've I've heard everything that you you know that you're saying on the air. Uh -huh. um, as you know, Zondervan, they're out there. They're out in Grand Rapids, and yeah. so we got hit. You know. We got hit with a lot of anti-Mormon stuff. And so, you know, I see the, I see the things that you're saying, um, you know, and I was trying to, to bring people closer to God for sure. Yeah. Um, can can I ask you, are you born again? Um, I, I have been baptized, yeah. You have been baptized, and that's how you interpret being born again? It is. You know, I've accepted Christ in my life. Um, when? You know, I showed that, that outward um, commitment. Jason, um, when by, did you by getting that ordinance performed? Jason, when did when did you accept Christ in your life? Um, I I think I've always kind of accepted Christ in my life. I I was brought up, you know, being taught that you know, Christ is the the center, yeah. the center of your life anyway. Yeah. Um, so you know, uh, so I think I've always accepted him. There has been times when, you know, yeah. um, I've questioned it. I think everyone questions, you know, about, sure. uh, you know. If God exists and, you know, if Christ was real, that's where faith comes in. So what gets you to heaven? What's that? What's going to get you to heaven? And when I say heaven, I mean living with God. What What is going to get you there? I believe that, you know, faith in Christ and, you know, the blood of the atonement is going to get us there. Um, and once we've accepted him in our lives, okay, we're going to, we're going to want to do, um, you know, we're going to want to be obedient to his commandments. I um, mean, you know, it's not... According to who? According to, to my belief. And no, I mean, to, what commandments uh, are you speaking of that you would want to be obedient to, Jason? Just any, any that has come forth from the mouth of God. And from the uh, mouth of God, you mean that are in, in Scripture? You mean from Joseph? You mean from any prophet? Whatever they say is necessary for salvation, that you would take that as, as integral part of you being saved? I believe that, yes. Yeah. So then Jesus the wasn't enough. Jesus wasn't enough? What's that? Jesus wasn't enough? Well, of course he was. Well, wait a minute. If he, he, you, know what, you know what I'm going to ask he you. Put forth these, he put forth these commandments yeah. to, to make sure we were obedient to him. Oh, I, and, and you don't think he gave you these commandments to follow him and do what he asked you to do, for instance, be honest and kind and nice? so that it's going to make your life better as a believer in Him, and you're going to help spread good uh, and things like that. But you take it as those good things that you're doing are necessary for your salvation? I believe that, that being obedient is necessary to salvation, yes. But what if you're not obedient? What's that? What if you're not obedient? Well, I guess every man's going to be judged according to his own life, and that's... You know, that's in the hands of So then God. your salvation is really predicated on your life. It is not predicated on the blood of Jesus like you told me a minute ago. Well, of course it is. But, but it, of course it's, it's, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just saying, of course no. it's not. You're telling me two things here, and this is why I'm having this dialogue with you. You said... Yeah, no, and I understand that. I understand, you know, I, I've, you know, talked to plenty of born-again believers. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and basically it's kind of how grace and works are, are mixed up. You know, I'm sure the, Paul the, says if it, will, Paul the says Mormon if, elders will tell you that but wait a second, grace Jason. without works is No, dead. no, no, wait. Paul says if it's grace, it cannot be works. And if it's worse, it cannot be grace. They cannot be mixed up. There is no connection between those two in how they are. They stand independently and alone. 
You're either saved by grace or you're saved by works. You cannot be saved by grace and works. It's impossible. It would be like yeah. saying, I drowned, but I'm still alive. You either drown or you didn't. I'm pregnant or I'm not. It's that you can't be both. And Paul yeah. makes that very clear. I'm bringing all this out because I want to tell you, and I say this with love, my brother, I'm telling you, you have a distorted view of Christ. And it's not your fault. It is by grace and grace alone. If you believe on him, you are saved. And yes, you will then dedicate your life to him and you will provide those works, but they have nothing to do with the fact that he saved you from your sin. He did it. And your faith in him and his blood is what takes you there. Hook, line, and sinker, my brother. So I hope that helps and let's stay in dialogue. Okay. All right, my friend. God, God bless you. <laughs> wow. It's all right. We're going to Michaela and Logan, first-time caller. Hey, Sean. Hi, Michaela. Hi. Um, I'm not Mormon, and I just moved here last year. Yeah. And uh, um, I wore a cross to school one day. And, well, before I wore the cross, there was this one girl, and I thought I was making friends with her. And then when I wore the cross, um, she didn't want to be my friend anymore. And so I just got really, really depressed. And ever since then, it's, I don't know. Michaela. Yeah? So did you take your cross off? No. You didn't? I just got a different one. So, you're, wait a minute, you, are you 13 years old? I'm 14. You, sorry. And you didn't take your cross off? No. Okay, I want to tell you something. I, I can't speak for God. Uh, I can barely speak for myself, but I believe that God is so proud of you. I'm proud of you. Everybody in this audience who's watching, who loves the Lord and knows what the cross means, is proud of you. You stick to that, my little sister, and you keep going. And we're going to pray for you, and you keep going with that stance, and you're going to have LDS people who will ask you about that cross, and it will give you a chance to share what that means with them. You are okay. one of the most brave missionaries in the state of Utah. You keep going, my sister. Okay. All right? All right. God bless you. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, we're going to uh, Matt in Spanish Fork. Matt, you're on the air. Sean. Matt. <laughs> How's it going, man? It's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. What's happening? Well, um, just wanted to call on the show. I can give you a little background. Well, you only got uh, about a minute, my brother. Okay. Uh, moved here from California about four years ago. I was in the bishopric, taught early morning seminary. Whoa. And let's see. I moved up here to Utah, no calling. They put me as a temple worker. Um, learned everything in there. They, uh, you know, well, I started reading the New Testament Yeah. in between sessions, <laughs> and uh, my eyes started to open. Wow. <laughs> Radical. So where are you now? We've only got, we've only got 20 seconds. Where are you now? I left about eight months ago. I'm going to Grace uh, Bible Church down Woo! Springville. Praise God. What a great story. Will you call back and share more of it with us in the future? I'll call back next week. All right, Matt, we're out of time. God bless you. Listen, uh, keep tuning in. We've got 30 seconds left. We're going to do probably another four parts on Mountain Me Mormon Mountain Meadows Massacre. And uh, my apologies to the Fancher family. I uh, have trouble with pronunciations sometimes. But that has given birth to the word tw twistianity and pastored, which are now in the Webster Dictionary, from what I understand. So we love you. We thank you for your support. Continue in your prayers. Please pray for our station manager. He has gone through some radically difficult medical things. He's the one who got this show going. We love him, and we pray for Denny. So keep going. God bless you. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter.
break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, I'm gonna break my rusty cage.